You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to another episode of Real Talk with Zuby. On today's episode, we've got my man Chance Lunsford, aka Logo Centrifugal, who is a blogger. He's also a podcaster. How you doing, dude? I'm good. I'm good. Another beautiful day in paradise, as I like to say, and uh, honored to be here and looking forward to our talk, man. Awesome, man. And where is paradise for you? I'm in Utah in the States. Okay. Is that home? Yeah, home. Born and raised. I mean, I've I've gone here and there, but most of the time in my life has been spent here in Utah. Okay, cool, man. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. I've given uh, the audience a little overview of your titles there, but tell us a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do, man. I'm, uh, what am I, 33 years old, and probably the most important things in my life are my family, my three daughters and my wife. Uh, Most of the things that I do are looking towards what I can do to further my family and their interests. Um, Beyond that, I'm a gardener, I'm a hiker, make videos on occasion. I record podcasts quite a bit these days. Uh, I write a lot. I've got a couple books out and I'm looking to put out several more this year. So I just generally, um, I I try to take in as much knowledge as I can and then I try to convert it into simple tools that people can use to further their own life. And I do that in the hopes that I can further the the goals and the interests of my own family. Awesome. Let's take it back um, a little bit further. I like to know where people are coming from to understand how they got to where they are right now. So you said you were born and raised in Utah. So tell us a little bit more about your your childhood, your family life, growing up, all that stuff. What's led you to where you are right now? Sure. So uh, Utah's kind of a strange and unique place. Um, it was founded by Mormon pioneers who fled a lot of, let's say, negative energy coming their way. And uh, there's there's disagreements about how much of that was warranted or not. But I don't I don't really 
care about that. But these people came out here in hand carts and wagons, settled the place, irrigated it, put up orchards and uh, started a whole, a whole new community out here in the middle of the desert. And I'm about, you know, my, my grandparents, parents and grandparents founded this place on my dad's side is just about how far I am from, from that, from the originators. And, uh, it was the Mormon pioneers who settled the place. And I grew up, you know, within the Mormon church and I, I wouldn't consider myself religious anymore, but that definitely had a big impact on my outlook and philosophy on life. Um, and I definitely still have a connection with, and a personal relationship. I, I feel like with my creator, um, and I wouldn't have had that without having a good foundation. So that kind of frames the deep background. And then as far as my personal history, um, my parents divorced when I was very young um, and my mom had a lot of problems. So my dad got full custody and between he and his parents, um, I had a pretty solid group of people looking after me as I was coming up in the world. Um, I've always kind of been a weird dude. Um, so, you know, I had my, I had my fair share of learning how to deal with the way that people can cast their, cast their own judgments on you. And at a certain point you just learn, you have to just trust your own heart and your own instincts and, and never mind any of the, of the stuff that comes your way. Mm. And when you get strong like that, then you can, you can kind of turn out and face the world and, and, uh, make it what you will. Yeah. So when you say you're a, a bit of a weird dude, what do you mean by that? Well, I've always been quite a contrarian, meaning if somebody tells me I have to do something or the thing is a certain way, I tend to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, <laughs> that tendency has caused me to, um, at first, it put me in a lot of problematic positions because I would just argue a point, but I didn't have any knowledge or reason to argue it besides I just wanted to. But as I got older and more mature and got punched enough times in the face, you know, literally and metaphorically, I learned that, well, you'd, you'd probably better do your research on this stuff and learn things. And I've always been fascinated. I've always been a deep reader and a deep researcher. So I don't necessarily go with the flow. I just try to find the things that are true or the things that work within the context of my own life. And then I talk about them. I have an opinion and I unleash it. And a lot of times that can put me on the outside of situations where, whereas a lot of people might um, just sort of go along to get along. That's not really ever been my inclination for better or for worse. And I just have a lot of different interests. You know, I, I got into kettlebells early on, or I've been into art or I, you know, I just kind of, I'm just an odd personality when in comparison with the people around me. And mm -hmm. that seems to be true no matter who's around me. So. Okay. What was it like growing up in, in Utah, being part of um, the Mormon community, especially for my, so I'm here in the UK, but um, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. And funnily enough, I knew far more, more Mormons in Saudi Arabia than I do here in the UK because, you know, I lived in an expat community with lots of Americans. So some of my friends and the other families in the community where I lived were Mormons. So I've probably got a better understanding and familiar with familiarity with it than most of the people here in the UK do. The main exposure from the UK would probably either be the Book of Mormon play, which I think is done by the guys <laughs> who created South Park, or you do get the missionaries who come over, particularly in the summer. So sometimes if you're in a various cities around the UK, you'll see them always dressed really sharp in, in their suits with their name tag saying 
elder <laughs> elder so and so and you know they'll be stopping people on the street and talking but you know i think most most people here most uk listeners certainly wouldn't have any sort of real idea of what it's like and what the values and things like that are. So I think it would be interesting to talk about that a little bit more and also what you gain from it. You said right now you don't consider yourself a deeply religious person, but you've taken a lot of the positivity from that background. So if you can talk a little bit more around that, I think it would be pretty interesting. Sure. Um, let me just preface by saying that some of the stuff I'll get into is considered rather heretical within the church. Um, but that's part of the reason that I walked away from it because my, my viewpoints don't necessarily align with um, what's being taught. So growing up in Utah is a very interesting thing, especially in Utah County, which is where I am at. I mean, it was like 95% Mormon when I was coming up and it's still close to that. I mean, it might be like 85% now. Mm. So there's a very clear and dominant culture that exists. And if you exist outside of it, it can be uncomfortable for sure, to say the least, you know, um, and it's gotten better over the years because Utah has become more and more exposed to the rest of the world, just like all the other places that have had this technological revolution that we're experiencing right now, talking to each other. But the church itself, you know, it used to be three hours on Sunday and you'd have different meetings throughout the week too, to try to keep people together in a community. And it basically, um, Jesus Christ is at the head of the church. And they believe that the Trinity are separate, meaning God, the eternal Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings, but are united into one Godhead and act as though they are one. Um, and one of the interesting principles of the Mormon church is that they believe, this is one of the articles of faith, we believe that man will be punished for his own sins and not for Adam's transgressions, meaning they don't believe in original sin. They believe that you are born clean and then your life experiences will determine the level of, let's say, um, uncleanliness of spirit that arises within you. Mm -hmm. And that through the power of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and the sacrament, you can um, engage in a remission of sins. That kind of outlines the church, basically. I mean, there's there's a lot more to get into it. But growing up in the church, it's pretty cool if you're on the inn because there's a lot of youth groups or scouts. There's there's activities where they get young men and young women together and get them used to interacting with each other, but with lots of chaperones around to keep things kosher. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the church, you have a sacrament meeting, which is an hour, and then you break off into different groups and do different things. So you're, you're with people of your age, learning about the same things at the same time, and then you can kind of discuss it. Um, when I was maybe 14 or 15, I started having very serious concerns with some of the stuff I was being told. And as I began to ask questions, a lot of the answers I got from most people was, well, just don't worry about that. Just, just take it on faith. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that very much. Is that, can you give an example of that if you're, if you're happy to? Because I think it's interesting. Sure. Well, let's say that, like, let's say, for example, that the church has this, a very particular story that everybody's told about how Joseph Smith um, had the experiences of these revelations in his life story. Um, and then there's a very different counter narrative that comes from people outside of the church that describes um, a very different person to the one that's described within the church. And when you start being exposed to that, especially with the internet and stuff, you never really had to worry about that before unless you went outside of the community and people might try to influence your opinion. But the internet came around as like, oh, well, um, what about this and this and this? Well, 
you know, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then you go, but okay. But like, there's all these people saying all these things. So where do I begin to learn to draw the line between the convenient story that you're telling and the obviously biased stuff that's coming from over here. And it's the truth is somewhere in between. Mm. Um, and so the interesting part about that though, is that in my view, the, the church is set up so that, I mean, it's, it's a levels kind of a church. It's very Gnostic in that regard where um, there are levels to the priesthood that mm-hmm you have to fulfill certain obligations to um, be able to be blessed with that level of the priesthood. And essentially you end up in the place in the temple where you're standing between two mirrors and you're standing between your own infinite reflection. And the idea is that you're supposed to understand that you are the same nature as the God that you've been praying to. And when you realize that you assume responsibility for yourself as though you are a God, and then you move out into the world and act as such. That's like the culmination of the spiritual teachings of the church. So when I started to look at that and then started to look at the things that I was being told or the way that I was being told to approach some of the questions that I had, those two things don't sync up. And I learned that the culture of the church is not necessarily the teachings of the church. And, you know, I've seen that time and again with other religions as I furthered my own study and stuff but that just kind of made me walk away from the culture of the church but it also set me on this journey of um you know personal exploration and and seeking of knowledge and wisdom so that i could determine for myself what i really believed about the nature of the universe about who or if someone created it what they would be like and how i might model myself after that being so that i could become as that being um, and do good things in the world Gotcha. What was the response to that? I mean, was it a well, difficult was it a difficult period for you, or were people pretty accepting and understanding, or did it cause some rifts? When I shifted my perspective, we'll say number one is at a very difficult time in my life. Um, I was going through a lot of issues with attitude, and I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking, and I was really kind of falling off the path in a lot of ways. Uh, and that was that was a process that took me a long time to get over. Uh, you know, like 10, probably 10 years of, of really abusing my spirit and my body and my mind and, and not honing in on anything useful. And a lot of that was because I felt betrayed by the things that I had held dear as a child. And I'm sure we all go through that to a certain extent, but I just, for whatever reason, um, I have some weaknesses in my character that um, made that especially impactful. So it was basically, I was living one way And then within a very short amount of time, I had nothing to do with that former life. Mm. And, and a lot of that was myself, but a lot of that was, well, my friends who believe certain things and live a certain life don't want anything to do with the things that I believe now in the life that I'm living. And and it's hard to blame them. I mean, I was, I was going off track a lot. Um, Like I said, I've never been a person to take it at face value. So Mm. So you went kind of down into a, a little bit of a personal hole, it sounds like, like a mini personal hell. So how did you pull yourself out of that nosedive? Hmm. Well, it's a funny thing, man. You know, I've always been sharp mentally. Um, I have a great facility for learning and I have a very sharp memory. So that that always came easily to me but wisdom is something that i've struggled with good decision making and i 
I went down a dark path for a long time. You know, I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of, did a lot of hurting myself and hurting other people and committing a lot of crimes and stuff. When you live that kind of life, the only people around you who will accept you in their life are people doing the same thing. Because when you're that miserable, nobody wants you around them except for other people on that level who can't find anybody else to surround themselves with. Mm. And along that journey, I saw a lot of people have overdoses and die or come close to dying or be incarcerated for long periods of time or um, kill themselves or even a couple murders for, you know, like property theft or drug deals and stuff. So you start to see that and then you realize, or at least I realized I'm not living any differently than any of these people. And I've come close to all this stuff. I've had brushes with the law. I've wanted to die and I've had close calls with these drugs that I'm using. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be here because a lot of other people aren't and I am, and I'm not doing anything different than them. Mm. So when you have that realization, then you have the choice in front of you. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And you realize also that what you've been doing is slowly killing yourself because you don't have whatever it is inside of you. I wouldn't call it courage, but you don't have that thing inside of you that allows you to just do it. And I started to realize, well, that thing inside of me is that I believe I have a purpose and I'm betraying it. So you have that little mind shift, like I want to live now. But mm. the problem with that is you can give up very easily because all my habits, all my living habits, I was eating poorly. The only, <laughs> the only thing during this time that I kept up was lifting kettlebells. But, you know, I went through three months where all I ate was rice and hot sauce packets from Del Taco and magic mushrooms. I mean, like I allegedly... Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the point is, you don't, you don't come back from living that way instantly. In fact, it took me a long time. It took me probably as long to come out of it as it did to get into the mess I was in, hmm. you know, a decade or so to be, to be to the point where, you know, I joined Twitter last year and that was the first time I felt ready to present myself to the world and say, I'm the kind of man I'm proud to be, and I want you to know because I have some things to teach. And that's that's why I do is because I climbed out of that pit that I dug myself into, and I got strong literally and mentally by doing that. And now I'm, that's kind of my deal, man. I'm, I'm coming to share what I know so that other people don't have to go down that path and suffer the way that I did. And it's not a pity party. You know, I did it to myself, but now I can save you some trouble if you'll just listen so that period of a decade, when did that, just to get an idea, like when did that start and begin? So is that from your, your teenage years to late 20s, roughly? or? So I started, I started smoking weed and drinking alcohol when I was 12 years old. Um, and that didn't really, like, I was pretty sad and things during junior high and high school. And towards the end of high school, I started getting into hard drugs, you know, heroin, cocaine, and all the psychedelics and stuff. Um, and it's, it's funny because I left behind the heroin and I left behind the cocaine and stuff like that in large part because of the psychedelic use, because I would, like I would say, eat some mushrooms allegedly. And then I would, I would have these experiences where it's like, oh man, I have this power within me and I can hear good and evil and I can see the world in a new light. And I want to, I want to be alive and thrive in that kind of energy, not this stuff over here. Like I'd be in my apartment with a bunch of people doing a bunch of drugs and being negative or like eating a bunch of like a uh, Vicodins and passing out on my couch. And then I have to worry about them dying while they're listening to techno. It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> it, it was intense, you know? So, and, and this, this was all, this was all in Utah. All the, yeah. this was all happening. Okay. And, and, uh, 
and there's a there's a strong counterculture like mm-hmm. that because a lot of people feel disenfranchised or um you know bitter about their upbringing in the church when you when you stop believing the thing that is your foundation it can it can send you for a, a tailspin big time I, I was actually going to say how did those two things coincide you um questioning some of your initial beliefs that you were raised with and moving away from the mormon church and then you descending into this problem with drugs and drinking and other issues how did those things coincide was it similar timing yeah so i've i've often looked back at this my dad asked me one time why you know why why do you do things that make you sad and i said dad you know i was sad and then i did drugs why do you think i did them and i think part of that sadness is there's just some of that runs in my family. My mom, his mental issues, her mom was a suicide. I mean, her dad was a violent dude. There's a murder suicide in my dad's family a couple generations back. So there's, there's some, honestly, there's just some mental stability issues in my blood. Um, and so I think that's part of it. You know, I started to kind of lose hold of certain features of my personality as I hit puberty. Um, as a kid, I was very open and outgoing and I had some bad shit happen to me as a kid that, um, you know, I was, I had to deal with. And as a kid, like, you don't know how to deal with, um, adults breaking you or trust. And so when that happens, you know, you just have to wait until you're ready to deal with it. And it causes effects when kids are damaged, you know, it might, I was fortunate enough that I had enough other problems that I entered into counseling in my twenties, but but in answer to your question, after that kind of circuitous route, um, I would say, number one, that I started feeling sad and weird and, and out of sorts first. And then I started having these questions because I was not the same person I was exactly. You know, I was looking at things from a different angle, from a sadder angle, from a more disconnected angle. And that offered some objectivity in my life. And when I looked at what I was doing, I had questions. And when I didn't get good answers or I didn't get the answers that I needed, I think it made me quite a bit more um, sad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you've pulled yourself up out of that hole, man. Was there like a, was there a specific incident or a day or a moment or something where you were like, you know, you, you've said it, you said it took several years to, to climb out of this hole, but what was the turning point? Was there, was there something you saw, something you ha- saw happen to maybe somebody close to you, something somebody told you that kind of just clicked it and turned it from a descent into an ascent? Well, <laughs> this is a funny story, man. But when I was, hmm, I think I was maybe 19, 20, 21, some, something like that. Um, I had a friend named Simon. And Simon was a paranoid schizophrenic and a legit one, you know, not just like I say that because I act weird, but he would have these things where I would get a call at two in the morning because somebody was breaking into his house and I would drive down to his apartment and he would let me in and it was locked from the inside and he had the only key and nobody was there. And, you know, so it was a weird, it was a weird relationship. He was very loyal, the most loyal of friends I've ever had when he was in his, uh, you know, like sane zone but when he lost it he could be downright murderous and it was a it was a intense experience to be around that so he and i one winter's eve were up in the mountains um tripping on some mushrooms allegedly and my my grandfather had just died 
and he was a he was a powerful influence in my life and I loved him very much and he was a very kind man and it it really messed me up because I was not in a good place already and then one of the rocks in my life kind of faded out and I wasn't prepared to deal with the death of a of a close person at that point so I was really off the deep end at that point and Simon's grandmother was in the hospital on life support and we were up there tripping and we were having a crazy experience looking at all the geometry of the world and and we were it was snowy but we just took off our shirts and we're in shorts and sometimes even running barefoot and being wild men and feeling like we were melting the snow I mean it was just a trip you know mm. but then suddenly Simon turns to me and he says dude my grandma just died and I said Simon what are you talking about man he why would you think that? He's like, no, she just died. I was like, whatever, man. Let's just get back to doing what we're doing. I'm sorry you're sad. Sure enough, within a minute of the time that he said that, he gets a call from his mother. Simon, we've just pulled your grandmother off of life support. She'll be gone before the morning. And when I saw when I saw that happen and I saw the look on his face and I saw the impact that that was happening, I knew he needed a moment, first of all, to process that because it would freak you out. And second of all, I felt this instinctual drive that I needed to go have some time to pray. So I said, Simon, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to leave you to yourself and I'm going to go pray. And I got down on my knees and I closed my eyes and I just opened my heart up. And I found myself in a place that was all dark except for a white door. And it was just a door of pure light. And in the glow of the door was standing my grandfather and he was healthier and younger than I'd ever seen him. He seemed like maybe he was a very, very robust 40 years old in his demeanor. And I had a chance to have a conversation with him. And essentially, I might get a little emotional here because it's a very important experience in my life. But I talked to him and he said, Chance, you know, I've been waiting here for you. And this is kind of the last thing I'm here to do. I just want to let you know that I love you. And there's a purpose within you and you need to, you need to be true to it. If you have faith in yourself and you do the right thing, things will work out for you. And I, and I got a chance to say, I love you to my grandpa. And here's the thing that's important about this experience to realize is, you know, that might have just been my imagination and an altered state allowing me to really get inside of it. Mm -hmm. But it, it doesn't matter because it was as though that experience happened to me and that shifted my perspective. And it wasn't like just the next day I suddenly was Mr. Like, gung-ho or anything but that was the point in my life at which i realized there's a way i need to be living and i'm not doing any of it and i started and it, it was a long process to get out of the hole but you know i just from that point forward i knew there was a thing inside of me that had to be given life so that i could express it and get it out into the world and i wasn't doing it then uh, that's an, that's an amazing story man that's really interesting to hear wow <laughs> that's um yeah, that's powerful, man. So moving on a little bit. So you said you're the, um, so you're married, you've got three daughters, you said, yeah? That's right. Yeah. So how old were you? How old were you when you got married? And how did you uh, meet your wife? And again, I'm just trying, I'm trying to like kind of build a, build a picture of your life here. So you're, sure. going, you're going through all this stuff. But um, so were you, were you already married at this point? Or did you get married after you'd started to clean up your act? How, what was the timeline? Yeah, so just after that experience, um, I also had some legal troubles and stuff, and I, 
I had the police raid my house and put a gun to my head and stuff. And that was another one of those things. It was like, it just came, all this stuff came at me all at once. And it was, it was like that moment happened. And then all this stuff pushed me out of my old life and into a new one. So I moved back into my dad's house and that was like a, that was a pretty bitter defeat at that time. Um, and I, I, I moved back into his house. And the first thing I did when I got back is I made a giant salad fresh greens and feta cheese and kalamata olives and pepperoncinis and all the stuff I hadn't been eating. I mean, I hadn't eaten meat probably in months unless it was like somebody's subway sandwich in the fridge that I stole yeah. or something, you know, like and I hadn't, I would basically just been eating a big bag of rice that I bought at Costco. So, so when I ate that salad, I could literally feel the energy and the life coursing through me. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> I've been missing out on so much. I feel so good right now compared to how I felt an hour ago. Hmm. And my dad, you know, he could see I was lost. He could see I was just barely treading water, just barely keeping my head above surface. He said, why don't you go to school? You know, I'll, I'll pay for, I'll, I'll pay for your school as long as you maintain your grades and you know, you can figure out something you want to do. So I went to a community college and, um, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I was studying psychology and music and taking generals and just doing this and that. And in this music production class I was taking, I, I'm kind of a wiseacre, you know, I just cracking jokes all the time, yeah. even inappropriate jokes and even with professors and stuff. And some of them are cool with that. Some of them are not at all cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we didn't have classes together again, but this guy was pretty cool. Martin Pond and he scores, he scores movies and things. And he was teaching us just the basics of a lot of different music production software, or sound production software. And there's this girl in this class who would just laugh at all my jokes, no matter how ridiculous or inappropriate. Um, and she was pretty good looking too. And so, you know, I kind of, I made eyeballs at her a couple of times, but we were walking down the halls of school one day and she just comes up to me. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. You want to come to my dad's house and have some chips and salsa? <laughs> oh oh sure. oh she, oh she oh she made the, she made the move well she came and said hi oh, wow. and then that's pretty much like the next thing i said I like, oh yeah. oh you and okay you and you yeah. invited her for chips and salt i thought she invited right. you i was like i was like damn that's uh that's forward okay i mean she was pretty forward she yeah. she came up and basically elbowed me like we're gonna do this or what so so we went back <laughs> to my went back to my house and had chips and salsa um and from that point forward i mean we were basically inseparable i fell away from school it just wasn't working out for me it wasn't I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do and I wasn't, I just didn't care to do it. So, um, and you know, she was at a time in her life where she has gone through some changes with her family life and stuff. Her parents were getting a divorce. And so we partied together for a while. We did some drinking and things. Um, but pretty soon, you know, we just knew we were going to be together forever. It just, it just felt right. Mm. And, um, about two years after we started dating, we got married and let's see, I would have been 22 at that time, not okay. quite 23. And then two years later, we had our first kid, and that was in 2010. That's cool, man. That's uh... <laughs> So chips and salsa is the one. Yo, man, if you want to be swooping, you got to get that <laughs> chips and salsa on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the move right there, man. Single, single guys take notes. Forget about uh, all the other crap you heard, man. Chips and salsa, man. That's just like, you know, two bucks, two pounds. Like, you know, I mean, keep that keep that on deck in your, in your kitchen. And, you know, you don't need the expensive bottles of wine or the meals out or anything like that. Just chips and dip. That's right. Just, uh, just be sure you're not going hog wild and spilling salsa all over the front of your shirt. That's not a good look. <laughs> Speaking from experience. 
Hey, man. (laughs) (laughs) What I lack in everything else I make up for in personality, I guess. (laughs) So how did, um, so how did marriage and especially fatherhood change your life and perspective on stuff? Profoundly. And it continues to unveil itself. Both of those things to this day, probably always will, but you know, I got married and that's a very serious commitment. And it's, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, you know, I'm getting married and, and here we are today and there will be tomorrow. And the differences will just said, you know, I do. And actually at first it is kind of like that. You're just like, yeah, I'm just married. I just love you. And now we're on this honeymoon and now we're just living together, but we are already living together at that point. So it was, you know, but you start to understand, you know, we wrote our own vows. And one of the things I wrote about was how we were setting a foundation and how we'd have a family and how we we're meant to be together. And we found each other. And this foundation was going to allow us to, you know, build something great and magnificent. And I, I, little did I realize, I mean, I sort of did, but I was setting seeds. I was planting seeds in the soil of our relationship that would grow into something more meaningful. And when you commit And we've been through some hard times, man. You know, I'm a hard person to live with and I have a history and she's got her own deals and and just like everybody does. And marriage is very difficult. Don't let anybody fool you. If they, if they have an easy marriage, I don't know what's going on because I haven't run into one yet. Mm. But when you commit, when you say I'm committed and the other person feels the same way, it's important. You know, like you can't just say I'm all in this and then have the other person disrespect you constantly and not be committed and not have the respect for the relationship that you do. But if you're both in and you both say, this is what I'm doing forever. What it allows you to do is you have that foundation. You have that knowledge. You have that confidence to say, okay, we're going to get through this because we've said no matter what we will. So let's look at me. Let's look at you. Let's pull things out and talk about it. And it helps you become a more mature person emotionally, cognitively, because you're no longer caught up in just your personality, just your viewpoint because it doesn't work that way in a relationship especially a partnered relationship where you're sleeping in the same bed you're living in the same house you're hanging out with the same friends you're inseparable except for maybe if you're at work so you can't you can't just have my way or the highway or it's not going to be healthy so that's marriage and then children i'll just say this about children when you hold that little baby in your arms and it's attached to the person that you love most in the world and you cut that umbilical cord or the doctor does, I got to do it. I did it. That's a weird thing, but you sever that connection. And now this person is a real person. They're no longer reliant upon the mother for sustenance solely. You know, they're breathing their own air. Mm -hmm. They're living in this world and you hold it, but you realize all they can do is breathe. All they can do is breathe and eat and cry and sleep. And that's it. That's all they got. They can't even use their eyes, you know? So when you hold this little thing and you see, oh man, oh man. And this crazy change happens to you. And you know, there's a, there's a neurochemical response and there's a physiological response, but there's a spiritual response. If that's your thing and you believe in that, it's easy to see why you might being a parent because you feel it. And you have this connection to this person and you go, this person for the next two decades is going to rely on me for basically every single thing in their life. I have to be here. I have to be the one. I'm the father. I'm supposed to provide. I'm supposed to protect. I'm supposed to offer discipline. I'm supposed to be the foundation. If if you don't, that person's likely going to be messed up in a lot of significant ways. If they don't have stability, if they don't have um, a good example, 
if they don't have that person that they can rely on to be the strength in their life until they're ready to claim their own, there's going to be a lot of issues that pop up. And when you see that, you instantly know it. You instantly know I have to be here now for the life of this game. That is probably even a more profound change in the marriage because now it's not just another person who's on your level. It's a person who you're in service to no matter what for as long as you live. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it scares me, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Cause, uh, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty close. We're very close in age. Um, but obviously I'm, I'm not, I'm not married and don't, don't have any kids yet. So I've seen my, uh, I'm the youngest of five kids. So both of my older sisters, both of my older brothers are married with kids. So I've got, I've got nine nieces and nephews. So I've kind of, uh, had a lot of the, uh, experience of it without the uh without the full <laughs> without the without the permanency of you know being the person who's truly dependent on i like being an uncle because it's it's kind of like this halfway house it's a happy medium but um i think what's interesting in the society we live in right now i guess especially in the western world in these modern times is that a lot of men and women to a degree have this um fear or aversion towards both marriage and becoming a parent. You know, I, I think that's that's for a whole bunch of reasons. I guess being someone who's, you know, a young guy, 33, but who's gone through these periods in your life already, you've got three three kids now? That's right. I think if you went back a few decades ago, being a 33-year-old man married with three kids would be like pretty standard. But that's actually, that's rare now. Like that's rare. Certainly in the Western world, that's like, whoa, like that's, uh, you know, you've still got guys like me who are, <laughs> who are like, okay, I'll do it one day. I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite ready yet. So why do you think that is? And how do you think that's, how do you think that's going to go? Do you think that, do you, would you, would you encourage men to take on those responsibilities and kind of have a society that shifts back towards those values or you know, I don't know. I don't even know what my question here is, but where do you think it is? Why do you think it's that way? And where do you think it's going to it's gonna go in the USA, in the UK, in these kind of countries? Hmm. Okay. Let's see. How, how to weave yeah. this. Yarn. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, tri- it's tricky because there, I think there are, there are so many different layers, but as I'm sure you're aware, you've got all these different movements. So if you want to look specifically at men, you've got like your, um, you've got your kind of, pickup artists and Mac daddy sort of, you know, community you've got on the opposite end, you've got the whole like MGTOW men going their own way who have just like, I'm done with relationships. I'm done with women, done with marriage. Like they've just cut that. They're like, nope, nope, not for me. And then you've kind of got a whole bunch of guys in the middle. And then you've got guys who are like, "Mm, I don't know about this. And you've got guys who are like, I want this, but I don't know if it's the right idea. Like, I think that's quite new. I think that's very modern. I think historically it was like, okay, this is what you do. This is what everybody does. Just do it. Now it's like people are questioning the whole institution and idea a lot more. Sure. So I'll I'll kind of zoom out and then I'll kind of pull it in a little uh, closer. But if you think about an overarching narrative for a society, uh, it used to be, and for quite a long period that, sure, there might have been a lot of different societies, um, you know, here and there throughout the planet, but they were long-standing, long-running societies that had a cohesive and consistent narrative that almost everybody without fail 
banded around. So if you lived in ancient Greece, for example, you know, you pretty much had the same philosophical and religious framework that every single other person around you did. And if they didn't, you were probably at war with them trying to prove whose philosophical framework and society was more suited to survive. Um, and that went on for a long time. But as technology escalated to the point where communication and information became ubiquitous, um, kind of like I went through my own situation, if I had been born a generation earlier, or especially two generations earlier, I would probably have never been in a position to answer any of the questions I had, and I would have had to swallow it. Yeah, I did not. And so I went my own way. And I've, you know, I found people along the way with similar questions, and I started my own tribe. But the problem with the tribe is that if they don't have exposure to other tribes, then they become an echo chamber. And then suddenly, you know, you get this thing like it's either our way or death or our way or, you know, it's, or we don't have anything to do with you. It's, it's being ostracized or destroyed if you're on the outside. So now imagine that you have this turbulence in this modern world now, and it's been brewing for quite some time, but it has really shaken things out at this point. And so you have all these different vantage points, all these different viewpoints and all these competing narratives all playing for a seat at the grand table. And some of the ones that have been winning recently are basically anti-natalist movements. They're, they're anti-cohesion movements. They're anti-responsibility movements. And what happens is if we question all the hierarchies, if we question all the things that you know, reality is that which selects, and it has selected certain things time and time again consistently for billions of years. In this game of life, there are dominance hierarchies, and certain pieces of those hierarchies have existed since the beginning of the game. Mm. And we are in a position where we could arrange our lives in a way that works around some of those um, sort of historical imperatives but it is not clear that it behooves us to do so. And in fact, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that it does not behoove us to do so. Nevertheless, we have the ability to weave a story and then to broadcast that story. And if we are good at weaving a story, we can get that into thousands or millions or very rarely even billions of people's minds. And whenever you encounter an idea, you are never left unchanged by it. You're forced to interact with it and you're forced to come up with some sort of resolution to the story that's been introduced to you. So it's no small wonder that in a time of a constant barrage of narratives coming at us all, all the time in a fire hose approach, some of them benevolent, some of them malevolent, some of them just existing from the froth of society, you're forced to confront a lot of ideas and maybe you don't have the answers and confusion reigns. So people hold on to something that they can connect with. And maybe there's a person in their life who has a certain viewpoint and they go along with it because this person makes sense to me. I like them. I want to spend time with them. Maybe the way that their thinking works. So that long preamble aside, what I think is happening is that some of these stories that are being ingrained into people's core, or they're like meme plex here, is malevolent. I think if you try to tear a family apart, I think if you try to take people outside of what um, is going to allow them to function optimally in the form that they exist in in the world, what you're doing is detrimental to the long-term um, quality of life for that individual. And also, a society is made up of individuals. And to the extent that the individual is actualized and satisfied is the extent to which the society can be cohesive and whole because nobody's clamoring or fighting each other for perceived or actual wrongs or a perceived or actual scarceness of resources because everybody is 
becoming tilted further to the side of producer rather than consumer. And when there's a surplus, there's less problems because there's more to go around. And when you have a scarcity mindset, when you have a divisionary mindset, when you have um, just sort of this angst and this desire to um, just flip the bird or, you know, just to drop, just like forget about everything I've been taught, all of it. You know, I found one lie. It must all be lies. Let's burn it to the ground. That's kind of the attitude that I see a lot out there. And we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they like to say, because there are certain things that are needed to keep a society cohesive. And we're throwing those things out, too. Yep. Including the very notion of objective reality, which is pretty scary. Bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> very bizarre. So coming up to where you are now. So um, you've been being a lot more active online recently. I saw you've, you've got your podcast going now. You're doing uh, blogging on your site. One question I do have to ask, actually, the nickname, Logo Centrifugal, what's that all about? Okay. Well, I started Twitter um, as the born know-it-all, and the born know-it-all was quickly sacrificed to the blue check gods. Um, so I, I picked some fights I didn't understand I couldn't win because I was new to the social media game. <laughs> what, do you, um, what do you mean? Explain that. Well... As obnoxious as I am now, I, I came into the social media world just throwing bombs at everybody <laughs> I could find to throw them at. I mean, I was going after I was going after Kathy Griffin. I was going after Talib Kweli. I was going after all these people who were so vocal. Okay. And I, you know, they would send their haters after me big time. And like Talib Kweli and I would go back and forth. And it was funny because he would actually talk to me, but yeah. I'd be like, dude, I just want to have a conversation with you about some of these things that you're saying that I don't think you're right. And he'd be like, nah, man, just go read a race book. Just go, just go read a book about racism and get back to me. And I'd be like, what book do you want me to read? He'd be like, man, just go look it up on Google. I'm not going to take the time to tell you to go read a book. And I'm like, dude, you just took the time to tell me to go stick it where the sun don't shine. Why don't you just give me a book recommendation instead? And then all these people come in. Why should he tell you this? Why should he tell you that? <laughs> I don't know, because oh, we're trying to have a conversation on the internet. Why are you hating everybody? So, so pretty quickly, I got booted off, permanently suspended. Oh, wow. And okay. <laughs> So I took a couple of weeks of being angry about that. And then I realized like, what am I going to be angry about? I could just spin up another account. And I had made some pretty good friends by then. So I spun up another account and I was thinking to myself, like, what am I going to be this time? I was already the born know-it-all. The born know-it-all doesn't have a lot of fans on the internet. So you know, like, what kind of mask can I put on and still feel like I'm true to myself? And I was thinking about like, you know, I believe in the primacy of the individual. I believe in the primacy of the logos. I think that the, the, the mind is the controlling body for all reality. That's sort of my personal guiding North Star is it all starts with the mind and the mind creates and take that back as far as you want. Mm -hmm. so, so I am logocentric. You know, I believe in the power of reason and I believe the power of the mind to manifest reality. So logocentric. Okay, well, that's clearly taken. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I've often talked about how ideas or concepts or experiences can spin you, meaning okay. that, you know, they take you, from a, they take you from where you're at and they just sort of disorient you and spin you around. And then you're sort of forced to come to a new understanding of your reality and reorient yourself. So, okay, the primacy of the logos, I'm logocentric. I believe that the world can spin you. Well, I'm about to spin you with the truth of the logos. So I'm logocentrifugal, spinning out the truth. Oh, wow. Man, that's like a rap name right there. Yeah, man. 
Hey, not for nothing, but I've been freestyling since I was 16. Oh, there we go. That's longer than I have. <laughs> I haven't even been rapping since I was 16, and I'm a professional rapper. I've often been told <laughs> I have quite the talent. Well, maybe, maybe you do, man. Maybe you do. It sounds like you got a few of them. So what's the what's the plan with what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go now, man? What's the what's the mission? Well, it's uh it's it's interesting. In the same way that I talked about how marriage or or the seed of that vision that I had or children reveal themselves to you in a process of continuing revelation, which is a phrase I pulled from Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church. I believe in that. I believe that things continue to reveal themselves to you as you continue to interact with them. So, you know, I just felt compelled to join. I knew I had things to teach. I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to market myself or who I was going to be able to connect with. I'd never done it before since MySpace, you know, 10 years before or something. So I just didn't have a frame of reference. I knew I had something to offer, but how am I going to get it out and to who? I just started playing around and just being myself. That's important to me. You know, I want to, I want to be genuine with the people I interact with so that they know that when I'm offering something to them, it's because I really think it's valuable or, you know, I really think it's worth it and they have context in which to place it. So I teamed up with my friend, James Dowling, who I know you've had contact with and, mm -hmm. um, I and another guy, Garrett Daly, and we formed the ION together, which has, you know, we still have like the core ION group. And then we have the ION media, which is kind of the content end of what we're doing together. But we wrote a book called the five pillars of the ascendant mind together. And it was essentially a book about how you can systematize everything in your life and build a cohesive system and perspective from which to have as a foundation for your life moving forward. It's not, how do I do this specific thing or how do I live this specific life? It's how do I live a life with a foundation rooted in systems um, so that I can know what to expect and know what to measure. And then I can move from there. And that, that was a cool thing to do. And I'd been meaning to write a similar book for a long time and it started it several times and it's still not, you know, I think in 10 years time or something like this, I'll write some sort of master book, mm -hmm. but I wrote that and then I said, okay, well, I got more in me. So then I wrote another book called uncommon mentality. And it talks a lot about how to use the powers of visualization in your mind to reshape the way that you interact with reality and reshape the way that you view reality and also to use conditioning techniques similar to Pavlovian conditioning techniques to prepare yourself for certain conditions. So like if you have a problem with anxiety, you create these mental states that you can trigger with the action and a thought, a word, you know, you, you anchor them in so that if you're in a situation where you're facing anxiety, you have this pre-programmed response that you can access to take away those things and replace them with another one, replace your mental state. So I put that out and now I'm working on another book um, for physicality and systematizing that in much the same way. Here's a way that you have a base system and you can branch out from there. So I'm just trying to, all the things that I've used in my life that have given me benefit, given me answers, added to my general well-being i'm trying to systematize those and deliver them to people so that they can have access to them as well awesome man dude that's uh that's inspiring man and god bless you on this journey that you're that you're doing man you strike me as someone who's very focused and got a clear clear goal and vision of what you're trying to achieve and the path you're trying to carve throughout this world so you've got my full support with that as you already know yeah man i appreciate that and same here i mean i know you're you're further along, I suppose, in, in your 
vision that you're building, but it seems pretty clear to me that you have one and that you're striking out to make it happen. Only in some ways, bro. I'm not married with three kids. So, you know, it depends on what you're looking at. Hey man, great men have (laughs) great men have great choices to make. (laughs) Awesome, bro. Really good to have you on the podcast chance. Um, Where can people find you? Logocentrifugal.com anchor.fm forward slash logocentrifugal and at logocentrifuge on Twitter. Awesome. Make sure you follow Chance. Chance Lunsford, Real Talk with Zuby. We'll catch you guys on the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.